Hello and welcome to today's edition of InfoSec Institute's weekly video series and podcast. Today, our guest is Lance Cottrell, Chief Scientist at Intrepid, and he'll be talking to us about his long history of online security and the importance of online anonymity in the world uh, we live in, in which it seems like our every move, choice, and even click is logged, filed, and exploited. Lance Cottrell founded Anonymizer in 1995, which was acquired by Intrepid, then Abraxas, in 2008. Anonymizer's technologies form the core of Intrepid's internet misattribution and security products. As chief scientist at Intrepid, Lance continues to push the envelope with the new technologies and capabilities required to stay ahead of rapidly evolving threats. Lance is a well-known expert on security, privacy, anonymity, misattribution, and cryptography. He speaks frequently at conferences and in interviews. Lance is the principal author of multiple internet anonymity and security technology patents. He started developing internet anonymity tools in 1992 while pursuing a PhD in physics, eventually leaving to work on those technologies full-time. Lance, thank you for being here today. Thanks very much. Great. Um, so uh, let's go way back here. Uh, it says that you, be, uh, you began creating online anonymity tools going back to 1992, and I thought that was really interesting because, you know, that was right about the time that I got on the internet, and the internet felt a lot smaller and maybe less all-encompassing now. So what was it that caused you to focus on anonymity and personal security online so early? There was a couple factors. Uh, so being in physics at that time, you know, we were the people using the internet. You know, sure. The web was invented that year. So I was setting up a website when there were no search engines. Mm -hmm. And we were doing uh, experimental astrophysics. We we're going out to telescopes and it turns out that you've got a lot of bright people with a lot of time on their hands at telescopes. And so protecting the target lists that you're going after became important. And so we started doing cryptography. And this was about the same time that the government came out with its clipper chip initiative, hmm. which was an idea that uh, cryptography is important, security is important, but we're not really comfortable with strong crypto. And so we think that uh, we should have a piece of hardware where the government keeps, gets to keep a copy of all the keys. And many people thought that this was a substantially bad idea. And a group called the Cypherpunks started building open source software as fast as they could. And I got involved with that. Hmm. Uh, so in my spare time, because of sort of a, a political belief that it, we needed to create these tools and open source them, because the claim was they were going to release this chip, but then you could still use your own crypto. But no one believed that, right? right. It's not going to work unless you outlaw the other stuff. So right. create a fait accompli. Uh, so I started building uh, anonymous email systems hmm. at the time, released them open source. They really started to take off. They were getting a lot of interest, but they weren't very usable. Like a lot of kind of uh, hacker made tools you, know, you had to compile it on your Linux workstation, which was never going to be useful for mom. Right. And so I started anonymizer as a vehicle to create these, tools and these capabilities for the average user. Something that's going to be user-friendly would work on Windows and Mac and wherever you happen to be. And of course, the web was really starting to take off at that time as well. Um, do, you, do these uh, tools that you created, do they still work on similar principles to privacy, privacy tools that we use today? Or has technology sort of changed significantly that, you, that these, these are sort of relics of the past? Many of the core concepts still apply. So with Mixmaster, you had multiple hops like you do with Tor and things like that, trying to hide the path. Uh, privacy is a lot easier, though, with things like email because you can store and forward and mix things much more easily. Once you're getting into an, a situation where you're doing real-time data transfers, 
Right? I'm trying to hide, say, streaming video. That's a lot of data to try to hide over a long period of time. Right. It becomes much more difficult to obscure it. But really, I think that the big challenges to privacy now are less about pure anonymity and hiding yourself completely and becoming more about how do you manage your identity and privacy in the context of social media and things like that, right? We're hemorrhaging information. We're putting up you know, photos of ourselves on these public platforms all the time, building you know, a fantastic data set for anyone who wants to do facial recognition or right. anything else. Right. So or, it's, it's becoming a much more multifaceted thing. Uh, privacy used to be much simpler. Uh, when did it become apparent that fraudsters and fishers were starting to take over the internet? Yeah, you know, it's funny. In the early days of the internet, it was this real trust environment. Yeah, you know, that's, that's what I was going to say. It seemed like it was yeah, a long time. Other scientists, and it was small, and, you know, there's a handful of bad people. But I'd have to say, you know, it was the early 2000s that I really felt like it was shifting. Before that, the hackers were mostly counting coup, right? They wanted to deface your website. They wanted yeah. to do something else. And suddenly, in the early to mid-2000s, this became a profit-making enterprise. And the hackers went from... You know, let me show what I can do to how much money can I make from this? And that completely changed the equation. It professionalized the hackers in an amazing way. It led to specialization and division of effort, right? The guy who hacks your computer is not the guy who wrote the software, is not the guy who will monetize the stolen information. Right. You have um, a whole sort of, in, you have sort of infrastructure of crime this way that's starting to build up. Yeah, there's, there's a real uh, ecology and economy, you know, happening uh, under the surface and it's made the problem much worse because these people can all then specialize in these areas and get really good at the thing they do. Um, you think there, there was maybe a, a shift around that time in, in terms of like ease of access? You were saying that, you know, the early internet was just scientists and people who really wanted to be on there and stuff. It seems like maybe in the early 2000s that, you know, like you say, mom and more people were sort of getting on the internet. Do you think that the sort of like rise of, you know, the inter internet is this kind of like for everyone culture that also sort of, you know, parallels the, the, the rise in the crime? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of, of conflating factors that went into that. For example, you had more targets, right? more people on it, probably less sophisticated people, but also you had a lot more e-commerce going on, right? In the early days of the internet, it was all sharing information, but there was very little money actually happening on the internet. But by the time you're getting into the 2000s, big online retail, uh, lots of credit cards flying around, online banking, you know, eBay, auction frauds, right. all these other things that provided mechanisms for monetizing it, you know, and even businesses moving so much of their communications online, you can do like business email compromise. Mm -hmm. And so as more of the economy went there, I really think fundamentally, it's just that the criminals followed it. Yeah. And I, I mean, you can really sort of like out yourself as an old guy. And, and you know, like the, there was a, a time before PayPal when you could just send a check. But, you know, once once money is sort of like passing back and forth and credit cards on the computer, I suppose that, that changed everything. Absolutely. I was just looking. I, I, I am forced to write a check today to someone. And my checkbook has an address that's four houses ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, same same thing. You know, there's a there's there's four empty checkbooks that you know go from X amount, and then the last one goes you know from a four four year span from when I started it to when it ran out. Um, so, because everyone's sort of susceptible to it, what are some of the most effective social engineering techniques and attack vectors that are currently being used to fish or hack victims? Like, what should people, you know, what's the thing that they easily fall for that they should really be watching out for? You know, I think 
people need to be aware that this is a thing and be really suspicious of every link from a financial institution, from a bank. You know, I think that habit of not clicking the links, but rather going to the browser and typing in your bank, is probably one of the best uh, protections. Unfortunately, I think that well-crafted phishing attacks are almost unavoidable. Right? Yeah. You will fall for them. And that's where you need to be relying more on systems that are resistant to that. I mean, I guarantee you an experienced attacker could fish me if they tried, if they really spent their time researching it. So things like multi-factor then come in, making sure that just because I clicked and typed something in doesn't mean I gave you ownership of my life, right? You still have other things you need to do to try to get in. And that is, to me, the real crux is making sure that you're a hard target. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on sort of the the, the newer versions of, of two-factor? I mean, obviously there's the, you know, the phone and the numbers and stuff, but there's also we're sort of moving toward like facial recognition or, or thumbprint identification. How does that sort of fit in with, uh, you know, anonymity in the internet? So it's interesting, you know, we think about biometrics and facial recognition, but there's really two very different flavors of these things. There's one, which is, I want to authenticate myself to my device. You know, I want my phone to recognize my face or my thumbprint and unlock. And there really is no large scale attack against that. You know, if you steal my phone, you could build a mask that matches my face and maybe right. break into it. But you know, seriously, it's probably much easier just to beat me with a stick until I do it for you. Right. Um, and you probably don't need to beat me that hard. I don't know. Whereas, you know, the public facial recognition where every time I'm walking down the street, I walk into a store, they know who they are, they're targeting pricing and marketing messages and whatever else they want to do. That's, that's the kind of more, more scary implications of this from a privacy point of view. Uh, you know, I think that frankly, the phone, as long as it's well designed with a good enclave and, and with biometrics, can actually be a very effective second factor. The only thing I worry about is if it really takes off, people are going to attack it more. Right now, there's not a huge amount going against it because it's not protecting that many people. You know, if I'm going to attack a thousand people, the one who's you, I'll just move on, right? I'll just attack the other guys. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing now that, for example, SMS-based multi-factor is getting popular for things like protecting Bitcoin wallets and things like that. That's now a tasty attack vector. And we're seeing, sure enough, people are going in and launching these... Uh, uh, SIM swap attacks where they're redirecting the SMS messages that the authentication to their phones. Wow. So now boom, I can log in as you and steal all your money. So we thought, oh yeah, texting your phone, that sounds like it's good and out of band and easy to protect. And it turns out it isn't that locked to you. And I'm afraid we might find that with some of these other techniques, but they certainly are a vast improvement over just a password. And with most people, a simple password that they use everywhere, right? I mean, unfortunately, that's the status quo that we're coming from. Yep. Password one, two, three, and all that. Yes. Uh, you were saying that, uh, you know, even you and I can be, you know, uh, security savvy people could be scammed or fished. Uh, have you ever been scammed or fished? To my knowledge, I've never been successfully scammed, but I've, I've certainly seen a lot of people try. I've seen a lot of phishing emails come by, some of which were pretty impressive. You know, they do a good job of sending you something that seems pretty plausible. Um, you know, my systems are fairly locked down, so I'm a little more resistant than probably most people. But for example, I got hit with a death threat scam where I get an email saying, you know, someone has taken out a hit on you and you seem like a nice guy, so I will agree not to shoot you if you'll pay me more than he is. Um, now, 
I did some research and found out that the IP address he was using was in Australia. And so pretty certain this is not legit, but you know, that's the thing that if you're not kind of savvy, you don't know how to look at this. You're not familiar with these kinds of scams. That's going to really freak someone out. Yeah. That'll give you, that'll give you pause for sure. It would. And this was before Bitcoin when it was easier for them to get that payment. I mean, I'm fascinated that as far as I can tell, the only two uses of Bitcoin really are speculation and extortion. Hmm. And, and maybe some drug uh, buying. Right. Almost no legitimate commerce is going on with Bitcoin. Yeah. 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 That, that is interesting. I'm, you know, my dad got hit by one of those social engineering attacks and it was, you know, via the phone. He was, he was told that, you know, his son was in trouble and he needed money. And, and, and it was, a, you know, supposedly a call from the operator and some other kid was on the other line going, dad, dad, you know, like, it's, it can be really insidious and he, you know, put his credit card through and, and these things yeah. can happen. And I did that, you know, in 1997 or something, my, my credit card company called and said they needed to verify something. And I, you know, that first time they'll, they'll, they'll zing you. But, uh, uh, but I, I think you're, saw, I, yeah. hmm? I just saw a kind of clever one uh, in terms of scamming people to get that multi-factor. Yeah. Which was someone had experienced a guy uh, texts them and says, Hey, you know, I used to have your phone number and I've got this old account that was registered to that. And I'm trying to cover my old password. You're going to see a text come through in a couple of minutes. If you could just send me the code, oh my that would really help. That is clever. Oh, man. That'd... And most people want to be helpful. Yeah. 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 You know, and it was well written and it seemed, you know, uh, you know, non- yeah. Uh, so uh, do you, uh, in your in your current position, do you run social engineering attacks or tests against organizations that requested you to test their employees? And if so, have you got any good stories in that area? We don't. We don't do any direct testing. What we, okay. we, we focus on building the platforms that, for example, often red teams are using so that when they go after uh, a client, they're not recognized as themselves. Because we've actually seen where the blue team will actually set up different firewall rules so that they look better during the penetration testing. Right. So then, you know, we help people sneak in under the radar. Hmm. Very interesting. So why, why, uh, I mean, we, we talked about two factor, we've talked about, um, you know, just generally keeping your data safe and so forth, but why is anonymity online important specifically? You know, I think there's a lot of reasons why people would want to protect their privacy and their anonymity online. There's certainly if you're discussing or researching medical conditions, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that are embarrassing. You know, people might be exploring sexual orientation and not ready to divulge that uh, financial information. And of course, we often look at this from a U.S. centric point of view. There's a lot of countries where expressing a political opinion publicly is dangerous, if not deadly. And so in many contexts, this is actually a life or death thing to be able to be effectively anonymous online. And in fact, there's also a whole number of corporate reasons to want to be anonymous, right? If you're, say, thinking about acquiring another company, when you're doing the research, if they can see you doing it, and it leaves a pretty distinct footprint, and it will. they can then start taking countermeasures or you know, know that you're interested, negotiate differently and play that game. We've worked with litigators. We've worked with, of course, law enforcement, right? The equivalent of being undercover is being anonymous online. And so there's a lot of different groups that need to be anonymous on the internet for the same reasons we want to be anonymous in the real world. So what are some of the tools or methods that people could be easily using right now to be more anonymous online, but maybe they're not taking advantage of because they don't know about them or 
don't think it's a big deal or what have you. I mean, there's certainly a lot of tools out there that will hide your network identity. So hide where you are, who you are, you know, what your house is. The trick is then separating that out from the activities. If you use some tool to hide yourself and then go log into your Facebook account, it's sort of undone all of that. Right. Uh, so making sure that you keep things really separated from each other, that you're not ever overlapping you know, this pseudonymous identity that you're managing here from your real accounts over there. Uh, frankly, I recommend using virtualization for that to make sure that cookies, super cookies, browser fingerprints, I mean, there's this huge number of identifiers that can be used to reacquire you. You know, just going into incognito mode is not going to work, probably even against sophisticated uh, advertisers, let alone sophisticated adversaries. Hmm. That's interesting. So, um, so I, I guess that, that means that we really, you kind of need to separate out but it also sounds like to me like you, you're sort of separating out the things you need to research anonymously can be done anonymously, but the things you do in your social life, Facebook, Instagram, you, you know, emails or whatever, it, it almost seems like those are sort of un, uh, unhideable. I think for all practical purposes, that's exactly right. Okay. Uh, you know, your social network is so unique to you that if you had a different name on Facebook with the same social network, I know it was you. Mm -hmm. And your friends are going to post photos of you and all those things. So yeah, my advice generally is don't try to protect everything. Uh, if you try to protect everything, it's equivalent to protecting nothing. Think about what are those things you actually care about? What are the things that matter? Um, think carefully about what you put on that social media. You know, remember, this is a postcard. This is, you know, going out in the newspaper. It's all public. Don't say anything there that you don't want to immediately get released and get monetized and get used against you. And then for those things you care about, really pay attention to protecting them, manage them separately. And I find personally, it's a very small fraction of my life falls into that. I really care about this. Um, as long as you're not addicted to, you know, drunk selfies or something. Right. <laughs> So, I mean, shy of, you know, changing legislation or whatever, it seems like that there are just certain parts of the internet that are going to actively resist being sort of secretive places. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's been one of the big changes about how the internet works is in the early days, it was mostly about consuming content that mm -hmm. existed out there. Whereas now, most of our interaction with the internet is actually about sharing content and putting things out there. And that really completely transforms the, the whole equation. You know, if you're willing to use the internet in an internet 1.0 kind of way, then anonymity is pretty manageable. But as soon as you want to be engaged in these communities, mm -hmm. then, you know, what you even mean by anonymous becomes somewhat complicated. But, you know, we do have these tools like Signal that are strongly secure, not necessarily anonymous chat mechanisms, but bring those conversations off the public network. And so a lot of the time people will use, say, private messaging in Twitter or in Facebook to share private conversations, not realizing, well, not your friend private. didn't see it. The company did, and the company can monetize it. So you know, moving that off into a secure end-to-end -end encrypted environment can at least help you capture the privacy, if not necessarily the anonymity. Now, what do you mean by uh, using the internet in a, in a web 1.0 kind of way, just in terms of just using it to look things up and not sort of interacting with the world of it? 
Exactly. Yeah. In a, in an almost purely consumptive way. So you're going to go out and Google things. You're going to look at web pages, read news websites, yeah. read blogs. Like a library as, database or something. Yeah. As long as you're just passively consuming it, you can do that with basically total anonymity. You can hide all of those footprints, but as soon as you need to establish an go and interact and, you know, discuss things with people, then that changes. One of the things that, uh, you know, um, I, I got your information and some of the things that you're a specialist in. One of the things that really stuck out to me was uh, you said that you're uh, sort of an expert on risky behaviors with technology that people engage in while traveling. Uh, what it, do you, is it because travel makes you feel like you're kind of free of all your obligations that people throw away the lessons that they learn at home? I think that's true. Uh, they're often off their guard. They feel like I'm on vacation, so therefore it's more casual. But you're also spending a lot more time using other people's networks. Mm. You know, you're using a lot more public Wi-Fi. Uh, you're carrying around your laptop in public. It is certainly, if you're in business and traveling, uh, there's a lot of countries where you may want to keep that laptop physically in your possession mm -hmm. uh, because they're you know intelligence organizations that will rifle the room if you're a person of interest and you know try to inject malware or pull off data or things like that. So it moves you out of your controlled environment. You know, you have it controlled. It's your network. It's your devices. You have physical control over the space. You have familiarity with, with what the situation is. All that goes out the door when you're traveling. And depending on where you're going, it can go way out the door. And some of these attackers get really sophisticated. There was uh, an attack that I read about where these hackers went in and compromised the reservation system at a high-end Asian hotel. Mm -hmm. And then they had a list of people of interest. When one of them was scheduled to uh, check into the hotel, they hacked the Wi-Fi. Uh, and when that person then logged into the Wi-Fi, what do you type in to log into the Wi-Fi? Last name and room number. Well, they know what their target's last name and room number is. They would then hack only that person's computer inject malware, which would then sleep for six weeks until they got back home and, you know, they'd passed all the checks and then wake up and hack them, you know, very, very targeted. But, you know, you're then on the, your opponent's home turf when you're checked into that hotel. And uh, they were very effective. That seems almost beyond um, being able to defend yourself against something like, is there any way to defend against something like that? That's, that sounds like the, the, the plot of a movie or something. Yeah. I mean, it gets really hard. If that's the kind of threat environment you're in, you need to be thinking about, you know, running off bootable CDs that immediately spin up a VPN that don't allow any patching that, you know, are immutable. You do everything over remote desktoping over a secure channel. Uh, and then basically you bring a burner computer. You know, if you're going to certain places, assume that computer's compromised, you know. Uh, it could be going to some Asian countries or Russia or uh, Las Vegas this week, right? If you're going to DEF CON. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> the yeah, they have, they have a bit of a different end for that, but they <laughs> prestige points. Um, right. So with the advent of regulations like GDPR in, in Europe and California's new set of security and privacy laws, do you think it's going to get easier to stay anonymous online? Yeah, I don't think it's going to help much with anonymity. I think it will help with some privacy. It gives a lot of uh, more control over what information people capture and what they do with it. Although it's one of those interesting things that it was kind of like uh, HIPAA. As soon as the HIPAA law happened, now the doctor gives you a sheet of paper that basically makes you waive all your rights as soon as you walk into the office. Well, the websites are all doing that too. Like, we're GDPR client uh, compliant. Click here to let us do everything we were doing before. Yeah, just slightly um, more transparent. 
Yeah, right. So there's a little more cards up. There are some restrictions about what they can do and how they have to handle things. Uh, there is some nice data minimization things that they're supposed to do, which I think will certainly help with uh, the scale of breaches when they happen and the amount of information selling that goes on. Uh, but yeah, it's not going to really improve your anonymity at all because you're still logging in. They still are tracking you. They still have all that information. Uh, but it may, it may maybe shrink the circle uh, that that information shared in a little bit. So if you were able to um, draft your own sort of legislation uh, that would sort of get all of the sort of your particular interests uh, sort of in line, what would, what would your GDPR, uh, you know, obviously be a different acronym, but what would your version of that be for, what would you enforce to sort of like allow for better privacy, better security and so forth? What, what are the things that you would love to see sort of go into effect? Yeah. Yeah. If I'm privacy king for a day, I mean, I think one of the things I'd love to see would be some extreme regulations on what ISP and backbone carriers can look at. Mm. You know, I'd like to make sure that your ISP doesn't watch all of your activities and try to monetize that and monitor it. Um, I think maybe uh, limitations on retention of data. I heard a great, uh, a great talk where the, the speaker said, uh, data is a toxic asset. And I think I'd like to see it viewed that way a little bit more. You know, how little can you keep and still accomplish what you're trying to do? And how short a time can you keep it? And, you know, can we really pull this down? And then maybe more limitations on sharing as well. I mean, right now, uh, you know, once you opt into the site, you sort of have to opt into everything. There's no granularity. You know, I would love to pass a law that requires companies to give you an option to pay them the equivalent of your advertising monetization value to not be tracked. Yes. Um, which, you know, is, is un, you know, certainly regressive and unfair to people who can't afford it, but at least there's some option to pick. Yeah. You know, in this case, I want to opt out of that. And I would love to see people value privacy enough to support privacy friendly and enhancing uh, network platforms. But so far I've seen a lot of them launch. I've advised a lot of these companies None of them have ever taken off. It's hard enough to be successful as a social media company, but when you're trying to do it in a privacy-friendly way, now you're trying to compete with Facebook with one hand tied behind your back a little bit because some of the things that make Facebook third-party integrations and stuff are exactly the things that are terrible from a privacy point of view. Do you think that there's a um, sort of, there seems to be a sort of an overarching cynicism about, well, we're, we're not, you know, there's no privacy on the internet. It's, it's too late. The, the horse is out of the barn and stuff like that. Do you think that's, that's also kind of a problem to some of this? You know, there is certainly that cynicism and uh, you cannot be private all the time everywhere, right? You know, if you're going to be on Facebook, you're not private. If you're on Twitter, you're not private, but I would like to think that it's possible to engage in certain ways, do certain activities in a way that are quite anonymous and quite private. It just takes a lot of work. And I think most people, while they give lip service to really caring about privacy, aren't willing to take those steps. And sometimes the steps are not easy. They're complicated and they're easy to, to screw up. I mean, I have built all these tools and have been doing it for years. And when the privacy goes wrong, it's almost always human error. Yeah. Um, I've been studying the Mueller indictment of those Russian hackers and it is full of mistakes hmm. that they made. Like what? Right. Uh, they, they would, they used, I think the same payment account for uh, DC links website where the leaks were posted. 
which claimed to be American hacktivists, and Guccifer, which claimed to be uh, a Romanian uh, hacker. But they paid for both of those with the same PayPal account. <laughs> or with the same uh, Bitcoin account, you know. So yeah. they were tying things together. They forgot to turn on the VPN ones, which allowed, you know, people to expose the GRU head. Mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, they used the same email addresses to set up multiple pieces of their, their networking infrastructure. So a lot of these little, little errors, which just go to show, these are professionals. It's really hard to do, which is why kind of my fundamental recommendation is the less you're trying to do that with, the better your chances of succeeding. Speaking of human error and sort of general education, what are your thoughts on privacy certs like IAPP and their effectiveness on overall privacy and security in the workforce? Yeah, I think it's really helpful primarily from a policy point of view that businesses, when you get someone with these certifications, they're now kind of aware of the overarching issues and it helps bring that thought to the forefront. You know, ideally you want to be like security, baking privacy in early in the process and having someone with these certifications uh, and, you know, with some status in the company really helps get that voice and that perspective into the process earlier, gives it a seat at the table. And I think makes it possible to do things like I'm talking about. How do you limit the amount of data you're keeping? Can you achieve your business goal without having, you know, every possible record that in fact you don't really need? So to wrap everything up here, um, do you feel that a semblance, semblance of privacy can be salvaged? And what do you think the future of privacy and anonymity online is going to be? Absolutely, it can be salvaged, but it's, it's really changed. When I started out, it was fundamentally an anonymous internet with small islands of identification. And uh, we are now in an ocean of strongly identified uh, content and tracking, but it's still possible to carve out little you know, pockets of anonymity when and where you need it. And I suspect that's probably in the long run, uh, you know, the best case that we can expect. Well, thank you very much for your uh, talk today, Lance. That was fantastic. Uh, and thank you all for listening and watching. You can find more of these videos on our YouTube page. Just go to YouTube and type in InfoSec Institute, I-N-F-O-S-E-C, and you will find our videos. Uh, if you would rather have us in your ears during your workday, all of our videos are also available as audio podcasts. Just search for CyberSpeak with InfoSec Institute on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to read more about security awareness topics, please visit resources.infosecinstitute.com for thousands of articles, labs, videos, and more. And uh, for those of you who are interested in the security health of your friends and your organizations, check out Security IQ. That's securityiq.infosecinstitute.com. It's a new service we have where you can send out fake phishing emails to your friends, customize them with templates, make them look very realistic, and then uh, when they fall for them, they can check out little... Um, educational videos and so forth. So thank you again, Lance Cottrell, uh, for being here. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Great. And thank you all again for watching and listening. And we will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.